Join me, Nathan Anibaba, on Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the client-side webinar, Will B2B Sales Ever Be the Same Again? Joining us will be our globally recognized panel of B2B leaders, Brent Adamson, the distinguished VP of Gartner and author of the Challenger Sale Methodology. Jeff Phillips is the former head of marketing for Sage. Marie Bergfeld is the head of marketing portfolio and communications at Bopst. You will learn what are the implications for the way that B2B sales teams now go to market, how industries that relied on field sales teams are adapting, how the best B2B businesses are prospecting remotely at the moment, what are the best tools for, for remote sales teams. That's Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the client-side webinar, Will B2B Sales Ever Be the Same Again? Details to book are in the description. This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. David Smith is an experienced leader in global telecoms markets, especially small island telcos, with a proven multicultural success across the UK, Europe, Middle East, Asia, and the Caribbean. He holds a globally recognized MBA from Cranfield Business School, He's been a board member for many years with a PL responsibility for growing and protecting revenue, business planning, mergers and acquisitions, and company strategy. He was part of the team that successfully floated Manx Telecom on the London Stock Exchange in 2014 with a 220 million market cap. David Smith, welcome to ClientSide. Thank you very much, Nathan. Big intro. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Well, you've it, it's all it's all your history and background, so it's it's you've you've done it all. <laughs> you studied geography and geology at Manchester University. How did your dissertation on an out of town superstore first pique your interest in marketing? Yeah, I, I chose geography simply because it was the subject I enjoyed most at school. Um, and tack geology onto it really to try something new. Um, so don't ask me to identify a rock. I wouldn't have a clue. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, arguably my, my final dissertation was an in-depth analysis of Manchester nightclubs. But it was indeed um, an impact study of an out-of-town superstore in Chessant in Hertfordshire. Mm. Um, and that store was one of the first Tesco out-of-town superstores at the time, which was built very close to their head office. And uh, yeah, after I completed it, I... Uh, I duly sent off a copy of my report to Tesco to receive um, a thank you note and, and two bottles of gin, which I, I mean, I viewed that as a major result. But uh, the, <laughs> I guess more importantly, the dissertation did, yes, pique my interest in, in marketing for sure. And from that point, you got your first role at Dixon's, but it wasn't a marketing role. Explain. Yeah, that's right. I applied to a few companies, um, as you did back in the day on the graduate milk round. And uh, mm. I actually received offers from McDonald's and, and Dixon's and, and literally flipped a coin and, and chose Dixon's. So, um, wow, 36 years ago, I think it is, I reported for duty at uh, the Wood Green North London branch to start as a retail graduate trainee. Um, and I guess people forget that at the time, uh, Dixon's was, was a hugely Huge. powerful retailer. Mm. Um and they were, you know, alongside other names which have, have long gone, so there's British Home Stores, Woolworths, um, CNA Rumblows. And at the time, it was run by this legendary retailer, Stanley Carms, who, who was hugely inf influential. Um, and I can still vividly remember uh, Stan, or Sir Stanley, excuse me, pulling up mm -hmm. at the uh, the Woodgreen store in his Rolls Royce for an impromptu store visit. And 
even the customers sort of bowing and and, and parting as as, as Stanley strode into the store. He, he, I mean, he was he he was a, a legendary. And um, but it did by luck. Dixon's shaped my entire career in marketing. A lady who was working for a division of Dixon's was was taking maternity leave and. At that precise time, I just had a chance conversation with the leader of the graduate program and, and just explaining my interest in marketing. Yeah, three days later, I was a temporary marketing assistant. The rest, as I say, is history. So fast forward a couple of years, and after a project management role at Fuji and Belling Cookers, you stumbled across the telecoms company called Hutchinson Microtel, and that brand eventually became the network we all know and love as Orange but it could have been called something else very easily. Explain. <laughs> That's right. I, I had been working for, for Belling Cookers as a, as a product manager. And again, hopefully many people remember that. Uh, it's a wonderful British cooker brand, famous for the ba- baby Belling. But sadly, this was in 1991, and it was a time of a particularly deep recession. And unfortunately, all 300 employees, including yours truly, were made redundant. But Hmm. um, I struck lucky and I I joined, as you say, a company called Hutchison Telecom, or more specifically Hutchison Microtel. And it was owned by um, Hutchison Wampoa, which to this day is a huge Hong Kong-based conglomerate managed by Lee Ka-shing, who's who's one of the richest persons in the world. And they just have interests everywhere. But telecoms was, was a growing thing for them and Hutchison Microtel was one of two new licenses awarded by the UK government specifically to liberalize the UK telecoms market and remember this is 1994 mm. um, and I joined this company which which had grand ambitions about launching a, a mobile phone service and I knew nothing about phones but I was uh, I, I knew retail marketing mm. and I was relatively new to brand marketing and the brief was quite simple. It was, you know, go out and create a brand that matched the company's ambitions to for this this new wonderful pioneering mobile phone service. So yes, I was part of the team that worked on that challenge, and uh, three brand names were tested. And yes, I, to you, Nate, I can exclusively reveal they were they were Jiminy, hmm. Pecan, and Orange. But um, <laughs> on the Thank twenty. God. <laughs> Thank God we went for the orange one. Well, yeah, on, on the um, on the, I think it was the twenty eighth of April at eight o'clock in the morning. It had to be with an eight because um, Feng Shui was a, a big thing for uh, sure. for Hong Kong companies. Of course, um, yeah, the future was bright, and the uh, the future wasn't Jiminy or Peak, and it was definitely <laughs> orange. <laughs> yeah, that would have led to a very different strapline and slogan. Right? <laughs> um, really interesting how things turned out. So, so you say that it was the agency Wolf Ollins that really got you excited about the power of creativity in marketing. Explain what you mean by that, because you worked on some really fascinating campaigns at that time. Yeah, it, it, to a certain extent it, it was. But to rewind slightly, it's, it's worth singling out um, perhaps the person who I think was responsible for the orange brand. And <laughs> a lot of people have perhaps slightly disingenuously claim credit for um, inventing Orange. Um, uh, definitely not me, but um, that person is is actually a guy called Chris Moss, and he was then marketing director of Orange. And uh, he won't mind me saying, I mean, he wasn't really interested or involved in the detail, but when it came to big ideas, he, he was 
he was out there. He was unmatched, I think. And the thing he did was involved a brand agency in the early stages who, as it transpired, have, have just unimaginable powers of, of sort of creative thought. And, and that was Wolf Hollins. I mean, they, they wrote the Bible on brands and they know what they're talking about. Hmm. Um, but the agency that, that brought that brand to life is also worth singling out WCRS. I mean, they were also instrumental in the process. And, you know, at the time, I'd just never seen creative creativity like it. I can still sort of vividly hear that orange ad with the baby swimming through the water and that sort of synthy reverb as it starts. Hmm. So it was fantastic at the time. Hmm. But the other, I guess the other thing worth... <laughs> more interesting event which or equally interesting event is um worth mentioning i think about um yeah which goes down in orange orange folklore um it's about eight weeks before launch and it's sort of called an internal meeting to announce um the orange name which had been kept completely secret from the rest of the the team and um hutchison at the time was a very technology driven company and the ceo was an engineer and some of the development work was was truly cutting edge. So when when a marketeer rocks up and tells them their wonderful state of the art art network will be called Orange, well, I have to say the engineers were absolutely livid. Um, so much so, <laughs> it was genuinely touch and go whether the Orange sure. name would be consigned to the bin or, or would ever see the light of day. But uh, fortunately, it did. Really interesting because now we sort of take it for granted, obviously. But at that time, when the name was first broached to the rest of the company yeah it must have been anathema to uh to everyone else that was working so talk us through what is the process for creating a global brand like orange from scratch you know what does the initial sort of brief look like what is the process of doing that yeah the, the brief is key because in in these terms it was about chris saying this needs to be completely different this needs to have cut through this needs to stand apart from the other players in the market at the time, who were Cellnet and Vodafone. So that brief sets the tone. Um, and from that point on, I think it becomes, if I recall, quite a structured process. I mean, Wolf Hollins were driving a process of brainstorming and refining an ever-decreasing list of possibilities and considering the implications of those names, that, yes, they can be used um, across uh, all sorts of domains that they needed to be, um, you know, you're kind of quickly knocking off the options. So you're left with those those three at the end. But the creativity and structure process that goes hand in hand was, was I think, critical to its success. Mm. So you become marketing manager for Mercury One-to-One in mm. 1993. Mercury One-to-One, that's a name from the past. And, and you were there for four years. Those guys dominated the mobile phone market for years. I remember having one or two myself. Tell us what that experience was like building the early days of what we now know as the modern world of mobile phones and connectivity. Yeah, it, it was a really interesting time, Nathan. Um, and as I just mentioned, at the time, there were two mobile phone networks in the UK. That's Vodafone and, and BT Cellnet, I think it was, rather mm. than just Cellnet. Mm. Um, and they were operating effectively a duopoly with with very high call charges. Um, you know, bundled minutes hadn't been invented then, and phones were just these huge, sort of weighty pieces of hardware, which were seen as a business tool only. So both Orange and Mercury one-to-one 
uh, I mean, they wanted to offer a service where a person called a person and not a building or address. And it sounds obvious to say, but again, at the time... Revolutionary. Yeah, it was revolutionary. You, you phoned yeah. a building um, and hope, in the hope that the person was there. Uh, <laughs> but there was still, at the time, to counter that, there was still quite a lot of scepticism about mobile phones mm. and a lot of concerns over the, the health impact. But that aside, it was it was a fascinating period. Of, of huge growth and, and very exciting times working in the industry. And you have to think back from a marketing point of view, Nokia was was a huge market leader for network equipment and handsets. And where are they now? Huge missed opportunity for Nokia. They should be the Apple of today because if you think about it, they just dominated the mobile landscape for many years. That ringtone is synonymous mm. uh, with the 90s, really. And... Um, if you think about sort of where they are now and how far they've fallen from the likes of Samsung, Apple, etc., it's a real shame and a testament to, I guess, lack of leadership. What went wrong there, in your opinion? If, I, if I'm testing my memory here, but if I recall, they were keen to follow a smartphone methodology in the way that Apple have, what is synonymous with Apple nowadays, and they effectively passed up that opportunity and concentrated on flip phones and, and basic kind of brick phones, as, as they're called. Mm. Um, and obviously, they backed the wrong horse. And uh, un- unfortunately, they, they suffered as a consequence. And, and Apple, um, and to a later, later extent, uh, Samsung basically revolutionized, revolutionized that sector. So, yeah, they just uh, backed the wrong horse, unfortunately. They really did. Let's talk a little bit about your time in Pakistan, because in 1998, you moved to Pakistan to become the marketing director for Mobilink Pakistan. What factors led to that decision? Yeah, I'd, I'd worked for four years at, uh, at Mercury One to One. I really enjoyed my, my time there. We had a, a lot of fun and some great uh, marketing campaigns. Um, but I, I did feel my career was at a bit of a crossroads. I, I could have stayed at One to One round out a career though over the following few years but I felt it would have been more interesting and more fun just to take a bigger role in a smaller company and travel had always been in my bones always enjoyed traveling so I started to look overseas and I spotted an advert for a a two-year marketing director contract role in in Pakistan Mm. for uh, a company called Mobilink which sounded great so I applied very opportunistically and Mm. um, would you believe I got the job (laughs) um and I, I think I was the only person who applied, but it, <laughs> and I, I don't mean that disrespectfully. It was just, it was quite a buoyant time and it was tough to recruit at that, uh, sure. at that time. So, but it turned out to be a wonderful two years. I mean, at the time, mobile phones hadn't really caught on in this part of Asia, which, which is amazing to say. I and mean, they were still expensive for the, for the market there. And the infrastructure and investment was just just inadequate. In, in fact, we only had about, if I recall, about 150,000 customers and 50 cell sites. And, and today, one of the guys who, who work for me, actually, is CEO for Mobilink, and they have 36 million customers. Amazing. I mean, of course, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> but um, kudos to Amir Ibrahim. He's uh, CEO for Mobilink. Really, really fascinating. And, and, and of course, in, in the developing world, we're, we're seeing countries sort of bypassing the sort of landline mm. uh, stage that many of us sort of went through uh, in, um, in, in the West here, in Western Europe, um, and going straight to mobile 
and sort of bypassing that stage completely where now you know the vast majority of upwardly mobile people have mobile phones which is which is really fascinating to see yeah your wife and, and two children came to join you it was really difficult out there in in the beginning you say but you say in many ways the pakistan experience the two years that you spent out there was really the making of you explain yeah it, it was actually nathan and i'm not ashamed to say the first couple of months was very very difficult it, it was a hugely different culture and environments than i was used to and it, it just made me realize what a a safe and sheltered environment I'd, I'd been used to and experienced over the last few years. And frankly, after a couple of weeks, I was very homesick and wanted to come home. But um, I don't know, you, I stuck at it. I rolled up my sleeves and grounded out, I guess, in, in you know, stiff, stiff upper lip and all that. But um, yeah, after eight weeks, my family arrived and that was a bit, obviously a big, uh, big help. And we never looked back. At the time, the country was was relatively safe, and a, a country like Pakistan always looks challenging from the outside. But mm. you, when you're on the ground, it, it's so much more different. And the people, the Pakistani people, are simply wonderful. And as a country, I'll do my bit for for tourism. Areas mm. of northern Pakistan into the Himalayas, there's just nothing like it on earth. Stunning. It's tough to travel, but if if you get the chance. Um, go you, you know you will not regret it so uh, amazing we'll do a travel blog nathan we'll we'll have to um you say that there was a time that you almost went to jail for putting up prices tell us that story because i know there were some fascinating stories from your time in pakistan yeah the, <laughs> one of many <laughs> there was never a dull moment in 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 pakistan it was a lot of fun um perhaps this one wasn't quite so fun at the time but <laughs> we <laughs> going to jail fun yeah that sounds like a mon- monopoly board. We, <laughs> we we increased some business tariff prices one day, and and by sheer quirk of some, I don't know, some arcane historical law, a local lawyer decided we hadn't followed due process and decided to sue sue me and and one other person, which trivially trivially you may think, but it quickly became quite serious. And I kid you not, mm. a, a Lahore jail uh, beckoned. Um, but to to cut a long story short. Um, our shareholders hired a, a top local lawyer mm. who, um, coincidentally, as I was chatting to him the night before our, um, our court case, he was a local TV celebrity. Um, in fact, having grown up in England, he, he confidently declared he was Pakistan's equivalent of Bob Monkhouse, <laughs> which um, didn't exactly fill me with confidence <laughs> being defended right. by this Tomorrow wise-cracking morning. Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> Um, anyway, I I did appear in a in a hot, dusty courtroom in Lahore, and unfortunately, the case was was dropped fairly quickly. Mm, really interesting. <laughs> you, so, so you say the government in Pakistan never really totally trusted telecoms, and so it, one instance, one story you tell is when they sent henchmen around to cut the main cable uh, that connected you to your customers. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was always always challenging, and um, just one day the Karachi police decided that our network shouldn't be on um, for the following weekend, as as there were quote unquote some security concerns, which we never really understood what they were. And mm. We sort of desperately tried to ignore this, but um, that failed. So they just sort of forced their way into our main switch room and and, and cut through the main interconnect cables with a bolt cutter. Okay. Um, 
bringing the entire network down. And, uh, you know, it, it happens, Nathan. You just have to sort of deal with it. But, um, I mean, it, it was a lovely couple of years. I could tell you about, the, I don't know, my introduction of a first ever um, telco advertising hoarding featuring women, the launch of a prayer timing service that crashed on network and and how a mobile link phone allowed General Musharraf to continue with um, a military coup. But I'll, I'll, say, I'll save that for my memoirs. We'll have to get you on another podcast. <laughs> uh, so, so you left Pakistan and, and had a brief stint at Keenan Systems, selling billing systems to telecoms operators. But you missed the competition of the telecoms business. So, when you were headhunted for cable and wireless to take on Digicel in the Caribbean, you actually jumped at the chance. Um, they were rapidly taking market share from cable and wireless. Tell us a little bit about that experience mm, yeah the, the context is quite interesting here and i guess thinking back to um to the nokia example i mean cable and wireless is now a textbook case study of how to make poor choices in business uh, in the really? in the 90s yeah they they held some really big investments in the early stage mobile phone networks in places like australia hong kong south africa bahrain and many other countries, and they, they decided to sell all these off hmm. and, and invest still in um, worldwide internet services and in the UK. And it just proved to be a terrible decision. And, and the company just gradually retreated until it had investments in, in 13 Caribbean countries and a few other small, similar-sized small countries. And hmm. So the good news was that Cable & Wireless held inverted commas monopoly positions in the Caribbean and the profits were used to prop up UK, but the bad news was this um, company Digicel, who are a private mobile phone company run by this successful Irish businessman called Dennis O'Brien, was about to arrive. And, and Digicel was everything cable and wireless wasn't. It was this young, fresh, dynamic, bright red, everything was red, <laughs> smiley faces everywhere, sure. this challenger brand, which was just going to take cable and wireless to the cleaners. And right. they actually launched in in Jamaica in April 2001. But at that point, uh, Cable and Wireless had 100% mobile market share. And, Di- and Cable and Wireless wasn't ready. They underestimated Digicel. And Digicel put on 100,000 customers in 100 days, which was their, their target for the first year. Amazing. And never looked back. And um, within three years, yeah, the company had uh, 75% market, sh- market share in Jamaica. It's huge. So, so you were hired as the marketing director to keep those guys at bay. Mm. How did you approach that challenge? Yeah, yeah. So I was recruited to stop, effectively stop Digicel doing the same in Barbados in early two thousand four. Piece of cake, you think? <laughs> um, <laughs> Easy. Yeah, this Digicel is a huge, aggressive brand coming in, sure. and to this day, they remain the toughest competitor I've faced. And and yeah, there's times you just have to kind of slug it out and face your competitor head on. And that's what we did. And even though Cable and Wireless had this reputation for a low quality service and some pretty uninspiring communications behind it. But fortunately in Barbados, we were a little more prepared as a management team. So leading up to the launch, uh, we made a big investment in the network. I mean, that has to drive any marketing proposition. I was going to say the product has to back up the marketing messages that you're taking to market, right? You can't put lipstick on a pig after all. Completely. So the infrastructure has to be there to support what you're saying. 
Yeah, and as Cable and Wallace had underinvested, they quickly turned on that tap of investment. So that's you know the first thing you do. But um, alongside that, they made some big price cuts. Um, they courted all of the top business customers and tried to lock them into long-term contracts where they could. And you know we made some big organization changed alongside that and and most importantly i think from my point of view we invested in marketing communications a big time you know the brand in the caribbean it all brand had almost grown old with the company itself it was safe boring and just Mm. lacking in originality so Mm. we set about giving it a cut of paint which which i did and and to prepared for this onslaught of digicel and it, it was an epic battle and we literally as I say, slugged it out in the press, advert for advert, dollar for dollar. But whereas in Jamaica, I think Cable and Wallace believe, almost behaved like a rabbit trapped in the headlights, it transpired mm. that for Barbadians, they loved a good fight. And they actually, <laughs> yeah, they really did. And they started really? the year respecting us and, and actually listening to Cable and Wireless because we, we'd sort of come back and said, no, this is, it's, it's, we've changed, et cetera. So you defended yourselves, you stood up for yourselves, you sort of went toe-to-toe in the press and in the media against this uh, bright new challenger brand. Talk about some of the uh, more interesting stories that came out out the back of that. I mean, how, from what I understand, Digital were very aggressive in their communications in the media, and you matched that tonally, sort of one-for-one. Talk about some of the the language and, and some of the communications that you're most proud of. Yeah, we, we did. I, I think you s- s- summarised it quite well, Nathan. We, we did match them toe-to-toe, as it were. Um, and our, our marketing worked. And I guess in in some respects, yeah, we'd, we'd created almost a cable and wireless version of Digicel. And to a certain extent, it became a zero-sum game. Hmm. And if you're an incumbent defending your position, that's no bad place to be. Um, you, you know, your, your aim is to retain your position um, and prove that your proposition is equally, if not stronger than, than this aggressive challenger. So, I mean, we pushed our advertising extremely hard. Um, it's maybe worth just emphasizing or highlighting one in particular. I, I, it was relating to this sort of comparative drive test campaign we persuaded most riders to put their name to. Uh, which uh, I was running in the local press. And off the back of it, I received a legal letter from Digicel basically asking us to uh, to stop, uh, which went obviously went straight in the bin. Um, but I actually didn't. I have kept it because at that point, <laughs> I knew I had them on the back foot. Um, mm. For a company like Digicel to send a legal letter, that's the okay. last resort. So it worked for us. The other thing we we did, which is 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 worth mentioning, we we got lucky with a radio campaign, uh, which is huge in Barbados. Radio is a big deal, mm. and we developed this campaign around this sassy local lady called Sharon or Sharon mm. in in Bayesian lingo. And uh, right. Barbados fell in love with her, her family, a yeah. builder boyfriend from Jamaica, and the whole. Yeah, it's, it was a wonderful campaign, and mm. actually won a few uh, Grammy awards, and and that it just kind of lifted the, the spirits um, of our uh, internal team as well as our customers. Mm, really fascinating. So, what are the main takeaways that you take away from that experience, that battle with Digicel and your and your time in the Caribbean that you use subsequently? with Manx Telecom and where you are now sort of as a um, 
someone who's self-employed, which we'll come on to in a moment. But what are the main takeaways from that experience in the Caribbean? Yeah, it's every situation I've, as I've been a marketing director over the years, every situation is is different. And I've always enjoyed applying my, my brain power to to those competitive situations and, and understanding how marketing can support business objectives we have. And applying those principles in, in different cultures and countries, more by luck than judgment, has just been hugely enjoyable for me and, and something I, I take great pride from. So I, I guess my, my one takeaway, I guess for anyone, is if, if, you, if you get the chance in your career to either take yourself out of your comfort zone or work in a different country, um, absolutely go for it because uh, you, you won't regret it. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Manx Telecom. In 2011, you came back to the UK and spent nine years with Manx, where we actually met. I was working for another digital marketing agency at the time. You were director of marketing and consumer sales and ultimately director of strategic development and M&A. Why did you decide to come back to the UK? Well, you won't believe me, but there's there's only so many perfect beaches you can sit on at the weekend, <laughs> weekend in the I, Caribbean. I disagree. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, um, but I think from a, a personal point of view, my children were at secondary school age, and and that was an important factor in in the decision um, to get back closer to home. Really, uh, mm. I guess there was a risk I'd <laughs> never go back, which is something I, I hadn't really entertained. Um, so yes, it, it was more for, for personal reasons, if, if you like. Hmm. And what attracted you to Manx Telecom specifically? What problems were you facing at the time and how did you help your customer solve them? Yeah, I, I, I can honestly say when, when I was looking for um, a route out of the Caribbean, as it were, I hadn't heard of Manx Telecom and, and knew very little about, about the Isle of Man. And when I was approached for the job, I... I quickly discovered it was a company with a really good reputation for innovation um it was part of originally part of bt and cellnet and then which was subsequently taken over by telefonica so it was a small part of telefonica which was uh, used as a test bed for 3g and three and a half g services that was really interesting um and, and more pertinently the company had just been bought by private equity owners so they didn't have a marketing director in fact they hadn't had one for some time so it looked like a really interesting challenge. Hmm. Really interesting. Hmm. And then at the time, as I said, we we met at the time. And um, one of the striking things that I remember from that experience was being met at the airport by somebody that came to pick us up from Manx Telecom. And on the drive down to your offices, we were told that sort of the Isle of Man is where a really famous annual cycling event happens every year where at least a couple of people lose their lives. And I was shocked to, to hear that. Um, and it sort of frightened me a little bit. But really beautiful scenery, a, a really, I imagine, a really a, a amazing place to work um, out in, you know, out in the in the um, fresh air, as it were, um, not, not so built up. Talk a little bit about what the culture mm. of the company was like and, you know, how, what factor did that, have in attracting you to them and the success of the company subsequently? Yeah, it, you're right in, in that, you know, I've spent the last 10 years on the Isle of Man and it is a hidden gem. Um, I, I believe it's a, it's a stunningly beautiful island mm. with 
a lot to do on the island, which which is which is captivating. You mentioned the the TT, the iconic TT races, which are held every year, mm. which is a big pull if you're into motorbike racing, and it's 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 like a holy grail type of event if if you're into that kind of thing. People from all across the world uh, come over to the Isle of Man. Yeah, it, it's it's a place I've warmed to massively over over that time. Mm. And in many ways, Manx Telecom has has mirrored that. It's it's you know when I I turned up, um, I found I found differently from Cable and Wireless, a company which had actually delivered a very high quality service to its customers. But I felt the company was just lacking in a little bit of confidence and, and proactivity, and grounding in the Isle of Man in the way it presented itself, mm-hmm. as as you you hinted at. So uh, one of my so the first task was to reset that brand, and and on an island like the Isle of Man, the population's less than a hundred thousand. Every business and consumer has a view on the company and a relationship with the company, sure. and if they don't like it, you know, walk into the local supermarket <laughs> the next day, they will. You'll, you'll <laughs> soon find out. Right. They will bitch about it. Um, <laughs> but I did help. I I hope they'll agree. I helped engineer a brand which was, I think, much more rooted in in the Isle of Man and gave the company, a, I think, a more contemporary image which uh, 10 years on is still in place in february 2020 of this year you decided to go self-employed great timing by the way <laughs> uh <laughs> with covid just a month after you help businesses uh with business strategy and MA. why did you decide to make that decision to go self-employed yeah it's an interesting one i mean as my career have evolved if it's right or wrong, I set myself a goal of, of remaining as a marketing director until I was 50 and happy days. Then I'd, I'd be sort of achieved one of my personal goals. And, you know, I absolutely love marketing. I, I'm privileged that I have had a really enjoyable career. But what I didn't want to be was this dinosaur marketing director who, who wasn't really tuned into the latest thinking and, you know, suffer as a consequence. Uh, a famous person, I think, once said, you know, the right time to leave is when someone asks you why you're leaving, not not when, when you're leaving. Sure. Um, so I passed that goal by a couple of years. I'd worked with Manx Telecom on some strategy and M&A projects. And I just, I felt it was the right time just to um, do my own thing and, and just have a bit more fun in, in hopefully passing on some of that ex- experience to, to others. Mm. And how have you found the challenge of, of COVID-19, setting up a business and going self-employed? In the midst of probably the largest economic downturn that we've had in the last, I don't know, 30 years? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, challenging in parts. Uh, I mean, the the PS to that is that um, the Isle of Man, fortunately, has been COVID-free for, for quite some time. So mm. life life is relatively back to normal. So mm. the island hasn't um, sort of suffered hugely as a consequence, which is which is wonderful and, and feel very privileged again to be to be here um and i've been able to uh, do a little bit of work with Manx Silicon and one or two others so touch wood it's worked out okay but i, I feel this podcast is the um springboard to global domination uh, <laughs> no doubt about it it definitely is <laughs> um so after 30 years in the, in the mobile and communications industry talk about some of the most exciting changes that we're now seeing in the industry what are the most exciting things that you're looking forward to or seeing? Yeah, no, I, I, I've loved every minute of work, my time working in the, in the telecommunications industry. If I hadn't, I would have would have moved on. And product life cycles, I just 
the pace in, in this industry is, is huge. And I just think it will be continue to be relentless. It's a very exciting industry. You know, when I started out, fixed lines were what you used and pay phones were everywhere. But mobile is was just starting and now everything is mobile. Email didn't really exist. Now it dominates business life. And I just, uh, you know, you think the power of applications you have on your smartphone, I mean, it's frightening. Mm. Um, and it will continue. And, and I, from a tel- pure telco point of view, the level of bandwidth needed to support those applications will, will continue to increase. So right now, the priority for, well, for Max Telecom and just about every telco around the world is to make sure that bandwidth is delivered, whether it's fibre on the ground or, or 5G. Did you ever think when starting in the industry 30 years ago that you would see the level of innovation and technological sophistication that we're now seeing with our mobile phones and personal computing? Question part A. And part B, what does the next 30 years look like? Yeah, and I'll give you a a very glib answer, which is no, I didn't. (laughs) And therefore, I have no idea what's coming up in in the next 30 years. But Visionary. You were absolutely always a visionary, but um, and that's quite important because you know what will happen in the next 30, 30 years is so difficult to predict. Yes, it, it's it's about mobile, it's about five G, it's about artificial intelligence, it's about predictive analytics, and so on and so forth. But what that means to everyday businesses and consumers, I mean, I just it will be fantastic, whatever it is. So I have no doubt that the telecommunications industry will just be continued to be this, this hotbed of innovation. You mentioned 5G, so maybe don't talk about the 30-year forecast, which is pretty hard for you to... Uh, to it's a hard question. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you the more immediate one. 5G, what are, what are some of the more unexplored applications that you're excited by when it comes to 5G? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I will downplay 5G a little bit. Um without getting too technical about about the standards and rollout of 5G services, the really interesting part of 5G is still a little way off. It's it's two, three years away, and that's where you get low latency, super high bandwidth communications. In fact, in in effect, replicating what you have as a fixed broadband service. And I think over the next one or two years, it will simply be an upgrade to to 4G, nothing wrong with that. But um, the interesting bit, yeah, two or three years' time is, is where it dovetails into this wonderful thing called the Internet of Things space, um, mm. which I know... People have been talking about that for a long time. That, yes, the, probably, probably another 30 years. But um, <laughs> in my view, Nathan, it's more a question of, of when rather than if. And mm. if you delve into this sector, which we certainly do, or uh, did as part of my role at Manx Telecom. Um, but uh, the, the, this this principle of, of things being connected rather than people, um, yeah, there's some obvious things like driverless cars, panic and alert buttons for elderly, smart metering and so on. But there's loads of, the more you think about it, there's, there's some really weird and wonderful ideas. I'll give you one small example. Mm. I mean, we have some, uh, there is now some serious mobile-based applications and and sensors which target livestock farming to monitor the whereabouts of livestock, manage certification around herds, whatever you need to do, and 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 some sim-based sensors with which tell you whether animals are ready to birth. 
So Amazing. you think about this, you think, actually, the mobile market, it's addressing every person in the world. It could quickly address every animal in the world as well. Um, and where does that go? Really fascinating stuff. Final question before we get into our speed round uh, of questions that we ask all of our guests. The early 90s, it seemed as though innovation in mobile comms was just going on these massive leaps of um, not not incremental change, but sort of these huge jumps. And the innovation now, it seems as though it's more incremental and sort of unnoticeable. I'm sure it's still significant. But is that, is that a fair assessment to say that the early 90s was characterized by more of these big leaps in innovation and we're now seeing more incremental changes? Totally unfair. Um, it's <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> question. It's a great question, though. Um, I think, in part, we, we're used to it and therefore we don't notice the, the pace of change that is, I still believe is continuing, it's relentless, and it will continue. Mm. And I, th- I think that value chain has also shifted immensely. And I think back 30 years ago, the network operators like One to One Orange were dominant and they controlled their customers through a billing relationship on their SIM card. And in part, that still exists. But you think how much control uh, handset providers and application providers now have over consumers and businesses. I mean, companies like Samsung, Apple, Facebook, so on and so forth they will continue to drive huge innovation, which which plays out right across the value chain. So, no, I think that pace is, is here to stay. Hmm. Well said. Let's get into our speed round. So I'm going to fire some questions at you, David, Uh-oh. if you can fire some short, sharp answers back. That would be appreciated. Which CMO or marketing director has the most difficult job in marketing right now? I would say anyone connected with the travel airline industry. So I've singled out the CMO for British Airways, um, which unfortunately, alongside COVID, is a brand that's been, uh, which was great when I was growing up, but it's been unpicked by a bunch of accountants. So I I would suggest Mm. it's little more than a budget airline. So rebuilding that, good luck. What is what a shame. What what do you think is going to happen? Is is air travel going to return to the levels that it was before? this pandemic? I mean, what's the future of the airline industry? Yeah, I, I, I would always have a positive outlook on these things. I, I think the airline travel industry will get back to exactly where it was and beyond. Mm. It, again, it will just take a little bit of time. But um, yeah, quite what that brand and, and position looks like and, and you know, pricing propositions around it, we shall see. Mm. Now, this is an agency-focused podcast. I, I couldn't let you leave without a question about working with agencies because I know that you've worked with several mm. over the years. Are agencies a luxury or a necessity, in your opinion? What do agencies do that's so unique to clients that they can't achieve on their own or replicate internally? Because obviously, it will be crazy to think that you could do something in-house that you're then paying somewhat, someone else to do. So what do agencies bring to clients that they can't replicate themselves? Yeah, uh, they can, in my opinion, they can be both a luxury and a necessity and they have to continue to add value to any brand or company. And and as long as they continue to do, it's a fragile position, but as long as they continue to do that, they are a necessity. If not, they, they can become a luxury. And the one thing, and I'll go back to my days at uh, Orange, the one thing that sets any agency apart is creative thinking. And, you know, when you get an agency with, who can apply some deep intellectual rigor to any problem, 
and solve it in a highly creative, unique fashion. I mean, that's worth adding. That's mm. worth paying big bucks for. You know, mm. whatever the price was for the Orange brand, I think of the value of the Orange company today. It's peanuts. Yeah, yeah, really fascinating. We all hit low points from time to time. How do you motivate yourself? I hear, I mean, if you're talking really low, uh, thinking back to my career and if your job is just not motivating you, leave, move jobs. Um, Mm. You know, when I've looked back on my career, if I don't feel or if I feel I'm undervalued or the value I can add is limited for whatever reason, it could be a whole bunch of different reasons, uh, move on. I think genuine self-motivation comes from a, a role where you're empowered, especially as a marketeer, to solve business problems or, or opportunities and, and really challenge the grey matter. Mm. If you haven't got that, find it somewhere else. Really interesting. What excites you about your current role and position being self-employed for the first time? Very different from the corporate world. How have you taken to that change? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, hopefully well. Um, I, I don't want to get too altruistic about it, but um, how do I put this politely? I mean, I'm, I guess I'm in the twilight of my career. <laughs> so what motivates and excites me now is simply being able to pass on a little bit of that experience and learning to others yeah. and, and hopefully knowing it's, it's valued, fingers crossed. If you didn't have a job in marketing, what else would you be doing? I'd be a chef. Ah, I'd, okay. Yeah, I, I'm a complete finisher by nature um, but I also enjoy creatively thinking around uh, things so for me a recipe is a challenge rather than something to be followed religiously so yeah chef definitely Jamie Jamie Oliver rather than Gordon Ramsay wow dinner at your place then um, <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> I'm just inviting myself around thank you very welcome <laughs> if you could live or work anywhere in the world knowing what you know now about Pakistan and all the beaches in the Caribbean where would it be and why? thought about this a lot, actually. I, I wouldn't, I'll, I'll give you a, a um, sitting on the fence answer, which is I wouldn't live in, in any one location. Travel's been been huge for me personally. Um, a, few years, a few years ago, actually, I set myself the challenge, which has now become a family challenge amongst my two kids and wife, of keeping the number of unique countries I visited ahead of my age, Wow! which I've managed to do. Wow, what are you up to without I'm, giving away your age? Yeah, I'm up to 60, 65 countries. Amazing. Um, so I've got about another, by uh, UN standards, about another 130 to go. So because because of that, yeah, I wouldn't settle in one particular place. And Oh, wow. So I'd be nomadic. Great air miles. <laughs> <laughs> top, top two or three places that you visited while we're on the subject? Yeah, tough one. I, I singled out from a... Um, earlier the, the sort of parts of, of northern northern pakistan um mm. i've enjoyed let me think uh, oman has a wonderful indigenous people and some stunning countryside uh, so i'd single out oman oh, yeah lovely um enjoyed seeing uh, australia as well mm. um just colossal in terms of size scope and uh, immense yeah I could go huge. on huge yeah everywhere everywhere has has some kind of appeal or benefit yeah. and number one on my list though is South America I, I don't know particularly well so um, hopefully this this time next year brilliant and my final question David what advice would you give to a recent college graduate or millennial who wants to start their career in marketing oh uh, embrace it it's it's a it's a great career 
and hopefully a little bit of the uh, sort of fun excitement I've had over the years will 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 rub off on one or two who, who perhaps listen to this podcast. I've never regretted a minute of it. And above all else, when it comes to choosing a role or, or company, even the first one you choose, my advice is follow your heart rather than your head. If it feels right, just go for it. Mm, great place to end. David, thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Client Side, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, please email Natasha at fox.agency. The people that make the show possible are Chloe Murray and Natasha Rosich, our booker slash researcher. David Clare is our head of content. Ben Fox is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anagarba. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. Join us next time on Client Side, brought to you by Fox Agency. Join me, Nathan Anibaba, on Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the Client Side webinar. Will B2B sales ever be the same again? Joining us will be our globally recognized panel of B2B leaders, Brent Adamson, the distinguished VP of Gartner and author of the Challenger Sale Methodology. Jeff Phillips is the former head of marketing for Sage. Marie Bergfeld is the head of marketing portfolio and communications at Bobst. You will learn what are the implications for the way that B2B sales teams now go to market, how industries that relied on field sales teams are adapting, how the best B2B businesses are prospecting remotely at the moment, what are the best tools for, for remote sales teams. That's Wednesday, the 9th of December at 3 p.m. GMT for the client-side webinar, Will B2B Sales Ever Be the Same Again? Details to book are in the description.